BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Uh, hello, everybody. My name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Tonight, we have a special guest, Charles Haywood. Uh, we're going to talk about his background. We're going to talk about some of his ideas that are pretty unique, but all, at the same time, also not super original. And that's in, in a certain point of view, which I think is actually one of the more interesting aspects about this is that there's you know sort of a return to tradition or return to foundation with his ideas and we're going to be talking about foundationalism which is um sort of what he calls uh his views on politics it's not quite christian nationalism um although there's a lot of overlap we'll talk about the uh the differences or the distinctions i think is a more correct way to put it uh as we get into the stream uh but he's drummed up some controversy lately because uh Josh Bice, I believe, of G3 was the one who wanted to take a, a shot at you and kind of a, like a it seemed like a coordinated attack where Michael O'Fallon was kind of pulling the strings on that. That's kind of how I read that. Yeah, it, probably... it didn't seem natural for him to like some of the, you know, going back through certain tweets and, you know, digging through some old stuff. It didn't seem quite his M.O. Whole thing's but, kind of weird. I, mean, I don't really know who what these people are, but I'm certainly happy to talk about it so that that's uh sort of what got this ball rolling i I see we got some people joining in don't forget to hit to uh smash the like button because that really helps with the uh live algorithms and subscribe if you are new because that really helps with the youtube algorithms as well as the podcast algorithms we are also live on rumble so uh we're live on rumble youtube twitch which no one really watches on twitch anyway and then twitter uh so didn't amazon buy twitch yes so amazon owns twitch and they also have their own streaming sort of platform like i could stream on amazon but i think that's more for like product demonstrations yeah uh so that's how that works so you have been labeled uh shampoo soros so how exactly did you earn that moniker what's sort of your background well, you know, George Soros, who is the you know evil 
billionaire of Hungarian extraction. And I'm also of Hungarian extraction. As it happens, that has nothing whatsoever to do with naming me Shampoo Shorosh. Uh, James Lindsay, uh, who I kind of know who James Lindsay is, but he's he's this uh, this guy who who uh, sort of I can tell is mostly grifter and runs around saying how if we talk enough, we're going to win. And uh, he uh, he took offense at my pointing out that he had erred in one of his predictions and called me retarded and uh, various other uh, talked about my mother and various other you know, what I would regard as low IQ responses to high level political discourse. But he nicknamed me and I actually don't dislike the nickname other than I don't really want to be associated with George Soros because he's an evil guy. Shampoo Soros. And that's a reference to the fact that Many years ago, I was a lawyer, and then I quit being a lawyer, a mergers and acquisitions lawyer, in order to run a shampoo manufacturing company. So I have I spent 15 years manufacturing shampoo and other hair care products uh, for the salon market, for the men's market, for the African American market, and uh, as a contract manufacturer. So you can't buy hey you never could buy Haywood brand shampoo or conditioner or styling products. I made it for other people's brands. So I sold that company so I can't be canceled. And Lindsay, who, as far as I can tell, is uh, you know, a beggar, has uh, is offended that other people are able to make money on their own initiative and through their own efforts, and therefore has nicknamed me Shampoo Shorsh. So I got to say, like, we kind of need a George, we need some more George Soros figures on the right, because I feel like, or even in the church, because I feel like but we don't have a lot of money in the kingdom. Like this is true. You have the people that run Hobby Lobby, but where do they give their money to the He Gets Us campaign? Yeah, it's that, that's Hobby Lobby straight to the uh, He Gets Us campaign. It's like well, that's where they throw their money behind. Then we have the ch things like the Chosen. It's like we're not really investing. So uh, I like to see that you know people like you, uh, Nate Fisher, uh, and the people of New Founding kind of rising up to kind of provide some, you know, capital and legitimate business. Yes. I mean, to met, uh, to Christians. In those things, obviously, you know, Nate and his, his crew both do things that are, are not profit and as well as for profit, there's, there's an overlap there. And, uh, and I, I mean, I am unfortunately nowhere near as rich as George Soros, who is a billionaire and I am not a billionaire, but I probably have more average, more money than the average dog. Is hey, like not all of us can make money off of, you know, well, shampoo, but didn't George Soros like loot Jews during the Holocaust? Yeah, like, he, he, got, he got his start that. helping to loot Jews. And then he left Hungary, not because of the Nazis, but a couple of years after the war, when he decided the communists wouldn't, weren't going to give him the good deal that he had gotten from the Nazis. And he then then he left Hungary, not because he didn't like like the Nazis or the communists. And then he spent the whole his entire career engaging in various socially destructive business and, of course, you know, not for profit things. Yeah, because I was under the impression he made a lot of money betting against currencies and stuff like that. He's a speculator. He's a traditional speculator. And of course, you know, his his standard response to when people point out that you take all this money and you use it to destroy societies is that you're, you're anti-Semitic, which of course is the oldest trope in the book that criticism of people who are Jewish is, uh, is anti-Semitic. I mean, George George is a very, very bad man. So I, I, I and it is unfortunate that he is of Hungarian extraction. I mean, I actually like Hungary. I said in a video earlier this week on Hungary, Hungary and Christian nationalism, 
and how you know i thought hungary has like the most underrated history in all of europe mm-hmm. i would say of all the countries in europe you know greece gets a lot of focus england and you know france and germany get a lot of focus but hungary is kind of very interesting doesn't get a whole lot of no one uh, speaks hungarian and there's only there's only it's, i mean ever since two-thirds of hungary was stolen after world war one there's a relatively small number of Hungarians uh, in, in Hungary. There are some in surrounding countries, including, as I am fond of pointing out, in Subcarpathian Ruthenia, which is temporarily part of Ukraine. There are well, that was stolen from Hungary. Are, uh, yeah, Viktor Orban brought that up in his interview with Tucker Carlson that there's Ukrainians di- or Hungarians dying for yes. Ukraine's cause. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I was actually in Hungary in uh, in June with my family. Uh, and uh, and that was that was actually very enjoyable. I didn't do anything political. I was strictly visiting family and uh, and uh, and tourism kind of stuff. But there are a lot of people on the American right who are who are who are interested in Hungary and involved with Hungary. And there's some some good stuff going on there. And obviously, I'm a fan of, of Viktor Orban. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he got COVID really bad, but other than that, he's been pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, he's actually not... given his precarious position between exactly. NATO and the EU and even Russia. Uh, he, he It's a tightrope and he, he does a good job. I mean, you know, is he like you know, the next Charlemagne? No, but for, for the times, he's, he's pretty darn good. Right. I mean, man, you think of like pivotal moments in history, like the Battle of Tours. Uh, wow. If they, if he had lost that. Yeah. I mean, well, well, well Islam I mean, to the Rhineland. Even Basically. more interesting is what are the pivotal future moments of history that people will then in the future look back at those remain to be revealed. So that, that's, yeah. that's the, the most fascinating thing. Yeah, I mean, I think World War II is the Battle of London because the Germans sacrificed their air superiority. Yeah, I mean, and, they didn't, and, and stupidly too. They didn't even lose it in a good way. They just threw, they, they thought that the British didn't have an air defense system all around their country, so they kept throwing I think there's a, it's a bias uh, yeah. Americans to focus on American and British events in World War II rather than than some other uh, other ones that are you know, some of the, the tank battles. I mean I think that's number one I think number two is they didn't why don't they surround Stalingrad like they never actually surrounded and cut off the city they just thought they could push through the city it's like why don't you cut it off there my grandfather was in fact uh he wasn't in Stalingrad he did not but he did fight in the the Royal Hungarian army against the russians though in uh, in hungary not uh, not fortunately for him as most of the hungarians who went east did not come back he yeah. was he was in his 40s so he was drafted late in the war and did not did not get sent off to uh to unfun places in the uh, on the eastern front yeah i mean yeah uh, yeah we could get on on world war ii <laughs> but let yes so you were criticized by josh Spice and a lot of the G3 folks for advocating political violence. And I think, and I read your manifesto and I like using the term manifesto because um, I have an upcoming book that I call a manifesto, you know, on the uh, title cover or the cover summary. Um, and you, the way I read it is you view political violence as sort of an inevitability because the regime is more fragile than it appears, kind of like a paper tiger. Well, um, it, it, like I don't know, I ne- literally never heard of Josh Bice before he started attacking me on Twitter. And, he owns a very big, or he's the president of a big organization called G Three Ministries. G Three Ministries, as far as websites go, is a giant, but he is not a giant. Well, I mean, he, he seems to be either 
you know, a liar or very low IQ because he, he keeps attacking me even after being repeatedly corrected on two things. And they're kind of related. One, this question of, of, of violence. And I mean, I'm obviously very clear that political violence or what they used to call in the late Russian empire, propaganda of the deed, you know, political violence under an oppressive regime is never a winning strategy. I mean, it's, it's also probably an immoral strategy. That's a different question, but it just isn't a successful strategy. And and so this idea that we should have political violence is uh, is not, I make very clear, is not something that I'm interested in. That's different from saying that I expect the future to likely, as our society transitions, because in the nature of societies is they transition, most transitions involve some level of violence. That's just a historical fact. And so people need to be aware of that and take that into in their in their thinking, that's totally different than calling for political violence. And it's, it's obvious that he knows that distinction, but since he doesn't want to engage with my actual ideas, he makes up this, this fantasy straw man. And he weirdly, he both he and Lindsay, and I, he and Lindsay are a weird, weird pair. I think I get the impression that O'Fallon is somehow bankrolling them or something. O'Fallon created the company uh, New New Founding, which is James Lindsay's Patreon on new system. Nate Fishers. Let's not slander Nate Fisher. Sorry, sorry, not new founding. New, new discourse. New founding is awesome. Don't don't associate new founding with these cretins. Sorry, new discourses, <laughs> which he he created that company, and then uh, so Michael O'Fallon created that company. That is the what? What's it called? No, uh, Michael O'Fallon founded Sovereign Nations, but he also founded New Discourses, which is James yeah, okay. Lindsay's website that uh, is basically how he's monetized uh his platform very not. lucrative right that's my impression that they're that they're trying to protect their grift but the other thing that vice was is always banging on about though he's backed off it i mean he hasn't brought it up in a couple of days and i don't pay much attention obviously is that that i say positive things about lenin and it, i i of course, I say positive things about Lenin because Lenin is a fascinating historical figure. I've written, you know, a whole. I've written, I write a lot of my my website, the Worthy House, and a lot of his book reviews that or things masquerading as book reviews where I talk about what I want to talk about. One of the things I talk about in both in a biography of Lenin and occasionally in other places is that Lenin is a fascinating historical figure because he is the he's a great example of someone who is a, a man who is extremely disciplined. Now. Discipline is inadequate. Lenin got a lot of lucky breaks to get to his level of success, if you want to define Lenin. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, though, I'm not calling Lenin, I'm not a, morally equating Lenin with like Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. But if you look at each of those men, they they cheat death multiple times. Absolutely. And you have to. The, you have Very to, fascinating. If, but like Lenin was the kind of guy who he was highly rational, highly disciplined, and he didn't let his ideology. Uh, I don't think people should have ideologies per se, but leaving that aside, he didn't let his ideology lead him into doing stupid things. And the classic example of this, so there's many examples, is that during the Finnish Civil War of 1919, which I think is a fascinating historical episode where the right, the left-wing people lost an election in Finland and started a civil war and the right-wing people beat them into the ground in three months, killing 1% of the population in the war. The that was right next door to Russia, of course, and the Bolsheviks had just recently taken over. And the the Finnish Reds and a lot of the Bolsheviks demanded that Lenin help the Finnish Reds. And Lenin was like, I got enough of my own problems right here. I can barely hold on here and dividing, you know, spending a bunch of time and money on the Finns who unwisely started a civil war isn't something that's going to benefit my particular program. 
So right, if, because they were still fighting the the whites at that point, I mean, right? But a lot of people, a lot of the ideologues among the Bolsheviks were like, Lenin, you, you comrade, you must do help the Finns. And he's like, I'm not helping the Finns. Do you, do you have a spare army? But that's just one example of you can admire people like Lenin for their discipline and their even wisdom in, in this case. But Bice and all these kind of people regard this as some kind of like, you know, way to attack Haywood. Again, not that I spend any, lose any sleep over this, but that he said something positive about Lenin. I mean, it's it, 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 it's just so low. I keep using this term, but it's true. It's so low IQ or just obviously a a, a mendacious lying kind of I mean, there are certain positive aspects about, uh, I'm trying to think, like Joseph Stalin, to, to his credit, put the kibosh on Lenin's, you know, allowance of degeneracy in Russian culture. Yes. Um, so Lenin was kind of, you know, the, a gay rights activist, basically, 100 years ago, sort of. They, they, they weren't focused on the gay rights. They were focused on the free love. Uh, like uh, between men and women, and you know, probably overlooking any any of the uh, the gay stuff. But it's uh, but yeah, they were they were big on like swapping and stuff like that. But you know, I mean, th th that oh, was all swinger culture at uh, the times. So, I mean, and that was part of the the ideology. Uh, uh, I don't know what any of. When you say <laughs> ideology, because you know some might consider foundationalism an ideology. Why would you say that ideology is bad? Is this like a Hungarian thing? Because Victor Orban made a very similar argument. In his recent interview with Tucker Carlson, well, uh, which I have not listened to, but I, I intend to. But the uh, it is this is a crucial distinction. So I tend to focus on uh, ideology using the James Burnham definition, which in essence is the a belief system that which any external fact does not change the believer's opinion. So if you introduce a contradict external facts, the believer will adjust. Uh, in order to absorb those facts, but will not change the ideology. It's something that's resistant to external demonstrations. Uh, so an ideology is a self-contained unit that is supposed to provide all the answers. And communism and leftism more generally, or classical liberalism, which is merely another branch of leftism, is are, are all things that contain within them a, a, a set of rules and beliefs that are meant to explain everything to you. So if you ask you know some any of these people who hold an ideology, they'll say, well, this this explains everything, and that's a mistake. What you need to focus on is what the reality of things is. And obviously, you can introduce external belief systems. Christianity is one of them. A religion is by definition an ideology. That is, any sincere religious believer holds an ideology. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But you can't organize an entire. And this is kind of where I part ways with some of the really straight line Christian nationalists. I don't think you can organize an entire political system around an ideology, whether that's a religious ideology or a totally secular ideology. Most of what relates to governance and human flourishing is more you have to reflect what reality is and deal with that as it is. So that's why I'm opposed to ideologies because ideologies, basically you have to try to force reality into a preconceived frame and then that tends to lead to a variety of ill effects. Okay, that seems to be Orban's uh, at least background on what he was uh, saying. So it's interesting. It makes a, makes his comments make a lot more sense. Um, uh, TD uh, made the comment: uh, one can write positively about Lenin, nothing will happen. What write about that mustache man? 
Although I'd like to say which mustache man, because a lot of dictators had mustaches. It's kind <laughs> of like a oh, no, but I mean, <laughs> but yeah, I think there's a certain. That's true. I mean, people people avoid <clears throat> saying positive things about certain you know, 20th century characters because simply because the the uh, radioactive level is uh, is so high. I mean, I think Lenin was just certainly just as bad, or Stalin. But you know, that's just that's just the practical impact. I, I think think what ICE would do with that. I mean. Stalin was definitely probably the worst in terms of body count, but specifically during World War II, Hirohito was the worst. Like, you know, what Japan did to the Chinese was sure, undoubtedly the, how, way worse than what the Germans it, did, I would say. How directly responsible is the emperor of Japan? Or is he just some guy in a gilded cage? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I was recently learning because I watch a lot of World War II stuff that, you know, the. <laughs> generals and the chief of staff or maybe it was a prime minister basically lied about america's ultimatum to japan so that he would approve the pearl harbor strike i mean yeah. it, it was an ultimatum to lift the embargo but you know you gotta withdraw from china but america didn't define what china was <laughs> but theoretically japan could have said you know we're going to consolidate create a puppet state and we are out of china uh yeah. So well, they theoretically could have done something like that. Counterfactuals, always interesting. So uh so I I do I, I did see that you had a podcast or something like that on uh Franco and Spain. So I was kind of curious on that because he comes up a lot these days. I think he comes up a lot for a couple of reasons. One, um, he is a successful example of defeating communism and we see that America didn't really defeat communism with uh, the end of this Cold War. I mean, the Soviets were defeated, but the ideology is coming here now, or yes. it didn't stop the ideology from permeating our society. So, you know, you see nationalism as a natural combatant of communism, which there are several civil wars that in which that was the case. Uh, the nationalists did not win in China, but they did win in Spain. So Franco being a, you know, a champion there, uh, I think that's one of the reasons. And the other reason being he's associated with right wing politics mm -hmm. and um, religious fervor because he defended the Catholic Church, especially during a time when the Catholics were being like raped and killed mm -hmm. uh, by the leftists in Spain. So um, uh, I think a bunch of things about Franco, I will say before uh, you know, I give a thumbnail sketch of, of what my, my thoughts are. The, the the point you make about defeating communism, but ultimately this ideology taking over here is, is actually an outstanding one. And I think there's a very good and not very long book on it by a Polish guy named Ryszard Legutko called The Demon in Democracy, which basically is the best book I've ever read on this topic, explaining how uh, you know, supposedly we defeated communism, but really communism and leftism, which is the same thing, yeah, defeated us. And uh, it's a book I, I highly recommend and, and I recommend to everybody. Uh, as far as Franco, I get a lot of Franco attention. Well, to, for the, to start off, I'm a huge Franco fan. I think Franco is just 100% awesome, you know, tasty, good for you, whatever all the adjectives you want to use are. I have a long piece summarizing uh, the life and times of Franco called On Francisco Franco, which every so often pops up on Twitter and gets a couple thousand views and, you know, then goes down again. So I mean, it's gotten like hundreds of thousands of views over time. And uh, and it, it explicates the truth about Franco based upon specific books that I adduce and I talk about anti-Franco books and so on. It's a very long piece. I mean, it's, I don't know, 
30, 40 typeset pages. And uh, but it's a complete examination of the man and his life and times and what he did and why he's so hated. And as you say, he's hated because he successfully defeated an evil communist regime that needed to be destroyed. And he destroyed it and he did a great job of it. And 100 percent of it was tasty and awesome. Uh, and so, I mean, there's more to it than that, obviously. But I mean, Franco was great. And uh, and that's why he's so hated, because he was successful. Unfortunately, when he died, I think 1975, that was the wrong time to die. So all of his his um, by that time, the church, for example, had taken to backstabbing him regularly, the Spanish church. And because the Catholic church had you know turned rotten in the 60s and uh, and in the 1970s, so-called liberal democracy, merely just another facet of leftism, seemed to be on the ascendant. And so all of Franco's work was basically undone, which is unfortunate. But what you going to do? Uh, bring him back, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, but it's interesting because he's kind of, I mean, people go after him because he was a proxy for the Germans against the Soviets. And then those same people kind of don't recognize that Hitler arose out of response to uh, Bolshevism in the in the Soviet Union. Like, I don't think you really have a Hitler without that. Oh, not at all. I mean, that's an under, underrated historical historical fact that that Bolshevism, the the fight against Bolshevism, was a real thing. I know that. Understand that completely from a Hungarian context. The Hungarians, of course, fought. Yeah, I, Hungarians and Romanians. Like, I really don't blame them for being Axis powers. Like, that was no, in and their best interest at the time. And, 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 and I mean, and it was only a chance for Hungary to get back the lands that have been stolen from it. But more than that, it was a crusade against Bolshevism and an entirely legitimate crusade against Bolshevism. And that gets obviously lost in the other crimes of the National Socialists. And while the same right. crimes of the Bolsheviks are completely whitewashed. But, yeah, this is not news to anyone. Right. So let's kind of get into the uh, foundationalism. You, you have 12 tenets. It's in the numerology of the symbol that you have for it, yep. which I like. I, I like that the symbol wow. has that uh, uh, thing. So and it also kind of looks like a cross, but it's not like a, a black iron cross. <laughs> no, that would um, be unfortunate, perhaps. So, yes, would be uh, unfortunate. Someone left a comment so that this Jerusalem cross on my background looks like the swastika. I'm like, what? Like, do you not know heraldry? That's just so. crazy. Yeah. It's like when my wife's Australian. Where we used to live, we had a Australian flag hung up for a while before Australia went to hell. And uh, and then someone commented to us, "Why do you have a Confederate flag up?" I'm like, "Yeah, you know, if you can't tell the difference between the Australian flag and a Confederate flag, you need to like." Right. That that's something bad. Um. So anyway, so just going into the uh pillars here. So the first pillar you talk about is space, and I kind of took that as cities are bad. Uh, and you kind of, am I understanding that correctly? No, you're or? Not. Yeah, you're not. I mean, I can talk about cities, but cities actually fall into a later pillar, which would be high culture and in, in discussion. Okay. Space is space exploration. The the works of man under the eyes of God. That is, I, I think that's, that space exploration and space exploitation is a, uh, a unifying binding goal for mankind that is also uh, useful. And this actually makes me part ways with a lot of people, people on the right who think. I, I noticed that you were big in the space exploration. Are you a Star Trek fan by any chance or? No, really. I, mean, at all? I read a lot of science fiction growing up, 
but uh, I read science fiction. The science fiction went into the toilet probably starting in the 1970s. And most modern science fiction is, is, is completely unreadable. I mean, there's exceptions and some things that some things that are actually not bad or not wholly bad. Um, okay, so your audio is cutting out a little bit. Um, uh, you're being asked, Kirk or Picard. So, uh, okay. So, hang on, hang on, let me make sure I'm not. Uh, is, is it any now? Uh, yes. So, okay. again, let me know. So, yeah, okay. So, you're big on space exploration. I, I actually get that. It's kind of like, you know, Dominion Mandate just taken to a, yes. That's, I mean, in, in a higher in a, level. So, in, in a literal sense. So, you're not a flat earther. You're not, uh, you know, we live in a dome or whatever. No, I just wonder because it's like, because my biggest objection is our propulsion system kind of sucks. Like, as far as like the, the means to travel beyond what we can, we need better like propulsion. Well, even what we currently that, got, and I've read this, nothing happens in the future, and you can argue whether the goal of progress in this sense even makes sense and what the the downsides are and so on. But leaving those things aside, without a a wholly new cheap energy system, you don't have anything. You just have regression. And, and I mean, this is well known, undeniable, really hard to get around. And one of the tragedies of the modern world is that that our our ability to work on having advanced technology that actually benefits mankind has essentially totally disappeared. Uh, instead, we get either you know crappy technology that doesn't benefit mankind or just no technology advancement at all because you know, reasons. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design, the kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Yeah, and so what I thought was there, there's more of a pioneering instinct in the first pillar. So the idea that, you know, people need space to thrive, you know, Manifest Destiny was kind of part of why America you know, became the giant nation that it is uh, both on the world stage and, you know, size wise was because we had a pioneering spirit of we're going to go to, we're going to go off to far off places and uh, cultivate it, uh, you know, get the land under, subject the land under our dominion, raise families, large families. And you can't really do that in a city and cities are increasingly, in my opinion, being designed to where you can't really have, you know, large families or. Um... It's an excellent point. I've actually been asked this recently and I've kind of changed my thinking on it. My traditional thinking has been kind of history bound in the sense that I think that cities are kind of a requirement for civilization. That's where high culture and high art tend to happen. Um, I think that maybe um, I'm, I'm turning away from that. I think that one of the benefits of technology is that an instantaneous communication, what have you, is that you can easily imagine a, a, uh, some of the benefits historically of cities arising without cities entirely. And as you say, 
modern cities are frequently designed for pernicious reasons and in pernicious ways. And therefore, we, it may be better to get away from cities and into other alternative forms of organization, or perhaps not what one might call micro cities, that is deliberately designed cities of, with, with people of like mind and like is seeking the same things, you know, high tech Amish kind of thing. Uh, there's different things you can imagine rather than a traditional city, which is, as you say, is just right. a cesspool. And Aaron McIntyre did a podcast where he talked about cities being used as a brain drain, like, you know, so to speak, that you're attracting all these high IQ individuals. Um, they're getting into a lifestyle where they're not producing a whole lot of children. And therefore, our society is being eroded of high IQ individuals absolutely. because there's some sort of genetic component to that. Yeah, that's kind of the argument that was that's being made. That's so, totally right. I mean, the, the, the child thing is a huge problem. I've been saying this for years, even before Elon Musk uh, started, took it up, that the, the, the biggest kind of mechanical problem the West faces for the future is, is lack of children. Right. And, you know, that even extends to even other countries that aren't Western, like, you know, the Russians have that issue. The right. Chinese sort of have that issue because they, they really shot themselves in both feet. Well, the numbers um, with a shotgun with the one child policy. Yes, the numbers are. I mean, the, the, their numbers are projected to drop catastrophically by the end of the century. And and it's worse than that because people people look at the raw numbers, but they don't understand that a society that's tilted towards the old is a society that's that's stagnant, decaying, can't accomplish anything, risk averse. I mean, you have to have the young dominate the direction of the society. Having a society where the old dominate is just a recipe for disaster and stupidity. I mean, that's what we have in the United States. It's the oh, boomer yeah. generation at all levels of government, except for the president, because Joe Biden is technically older than a boomer. Yeah, this is, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, born in 1942. But we have three presidents that were all born in 1946. Three presidents. And all the people who are still alive who came before the boomers, you know, 90% of them have sucked. So, you know, I just have no use for them. Time to shuffle them off to the retirement homes. Uh, retirement community. I don't know if you. Well, no, I, I don't think we should have retirement communities. I think we should have extended families, and we should not. Yeah, be I mean, and, yeah, that's one of the things that you kind of think about as a believer is whether to subject old people to that. No, um, you should, but yes. uh, I'll make an exception for some of the boomers. <laughs> well, we got Congress, which is basically a retirement community now, um, with weekend uh, with weekend of Bernies and fast times at Capitol Hill. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of all of that. Um, so let's talk about the second pillar, which was uh, a mixed government of limited ends and unlimited means. So this is kind of scary to a lot of conservatives, particularly those who uh, believe that it is a, um, you know, un, you know, government with unlimited means is scary to a lot of conservatives, uh, especially those who believe in limited government. But you define limited ends. So let's kind of first start out breaking that down. So what are the limited ends of government? So the limited ends of government are two. Well, there's a couple. And and as with everything under foundationalism, there's no 100% answer that's going to apply for every future society because things have to develop organically. So, for example, a good example here is a society that faces significant external threats. One of the key important things that the government has to do is manage those external threats. That's an end of government that's crucial for that society. Whereas a society that doesn't have a lot of external threats, that's that's not such an important end, uh, end for government. Regardless, 
that being a key a key element of what the government is supposed to do, the government has functionally unlimited means to that end. Of course, I mean unlimited in in the sense that they can like take infants and put them in cannons, and, you know, or or something like that. But I mean, within within reason, it means unlimited uh, unlimited means. And mixed government is an important element of that as well, because a mixed government is the break upon the misuse of unlimited means. So a mixed government historically is one that has elements of monarchy, <laughs> democracy, and aristocracy. And so you have a, and represents all, all elements of society. You don't want a democracy ever. Pure democracy is the worst ever. You can imagine a monarchy being successful because all, all monarchies are in fact forms of mixed government because there's, there's never been such a thing as an absolute monarch uh, in the West. So whatever the, ends of the government are determined to be by that society, the government functionally should have unlimited means to pursue those. Now, monarchies did get more, I don't want to say absolute, but certainly the crowns became stronger as the you know late Middle Ages progressed into the uh, pre-industrial revolution era. Um, That's true up to a point, but people don't understand that the even... You know, the Sun King, Louis the Fourteenth, or something, who claimed to be in essence absolute monarch. All those people, and certainly earlier monarchs to a vast degree, were hugely constrained by a, a web of relationships in, in the society, by the role of custom, by the church, by all sorts of things. So the idea that there, there ever was an absolute monarch who had one fiftieth of the power of, say, a random American government bureaucrat today. Well, not a random one, but a powerful, say, you know, John Podesta has vastly more power over the lives of Americans than any uh, any European monarch ever had. And the Supreme Court or, or what have you. And that's because the intrusiveness of government, the, the, the degree to which government uh, influences the life of the average person really only became intrusive in the 20th century. There's a famous line by A.G.P. Taylor. A.J.P. Taylor, who's an English historian uh, in his book, it's a book on English history, but basically how up until the end of World War I, an Englishman of any period in history could essentially go his entire life with zero relationship with the government, zero contact, except for like the post office and, you know, maybe like, you know, the water. And so this idea in the past that the, the absolute monarchs were some crushing burden on the people of the country is just you know historically inaccurate yeah i mean i think there were times when you know you look at the english civil war where the king of england uh became more of a prescient force particularly because he was anti-calvinist um but yeah on average i think you're right that you know if if america if all america is is an experiment then i don't see how we succeeded in our mission but if america is more than an experiment if we are a you know a nation yes we rebelled against the crown but we also have our own heritage our own culture and we created our own unique national identity if we have more if we're more than an idea more than an experiment um then you know there there's hope for us because you know if we're just an experiment i'm not sure how you call us a success well that goes after back. 200 years sure well i mean you know things end but the the that goes back to your point earlier about nationalism that is right. 
nationalism isn't something, I mean, inherently nationalism is opposed to things like communism or, or other ideologies because nationalism is a natural facet of, uh, of mankind because all it means is the love of one's, one's nation. And so it, it, the, the idea that America is nothing but a thought experiment is, is obviously false. It's more of a thought experiment than a lot of other nations. But the, that's why nationalism, uh, just like Franco, is tasty and 100% awesome, uh, at least in theory. I mean, nationalism can take an unpleasant turns. Uh, but in terms of an organizing principle, if you don't have a nation organized around the principle of nationalism, you don't have a nation at all. Right. And one of the things that you could have had back then, you know, with the non-interfering monarch is you would have had a national pride surrounding the monarchy, which, you know, British people still maintain to, somewhat to this day, um, yeah. perhaps because the monarch is so non-intrusive. Well, they're just waiting for Meghan Markle to to ascend the uh, the throne, and then then they they'll really stop having respect for the monarchy. Uh, very true, and it's you know viewed as right wing to support the British monarchy system because it's a you know it is a vestige of when the British people are awesome. But in 1945, they decide to you know remove the key, you know take the keys from Winston Churchill after he did a good job and go left wing. No, it's very strange. I mean, the, the, the British self-destruction, you know, and most recently, obviously, with, with you see, allowing millions of alien invaders to completely destroy the idea of the nation. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's very, it, the, the kind of tendency towards national suicide across multiple nations in the second half of the 20th century and the first half of the 21st century. Uh, well, they started early. Yeah, but 500 years from now, historians will be, will be wondering what the hell went on here. I mean, I think it's going to be... Yeah, I mean, you have the guy that won your existential war and then you take the keys from him mid-negotiations. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's more than that. Like, I, that... that and then they, you know, go socialist. Right. In order to go socialist. That's well, do, do one of the main reasons. Wrong. And then, you know, and, and, and then they just... They, and, but, you know, it is what it is at this point. I mean, England is completely irredeemable. Uh, or the UK or whatever you want to call it. I mean, yeah. the, the sooner they put out a sign like to rent and everybody just decides to let the uh, the alien invaders sweep over it. You know, uh, if they didn't decolonize, they wouldn't be, if Europe didn't decolonize, they wouldn't be dealing with mass immigration issues. No, but but even if they did decolonize, they should not have accepted anyone from the colonies who did not fit the proper mold of being a, a British person. That, I mean, that was their first, uh, their first flaw, this idea that we have to accept people who are alien to the to Britain because they were in colonies, and those colonies hugely benefited those colonies on average, and they, those those people who were colonized should have been grateful and stayed in their own damn countries. But that's not the way they took it. What was it? Uh, so you know, when I say you know the role of government, just to go back to Pillar Two, um, you know, you, you look at Romans thirteen. It's a reward good and punish evil. So you know, crime and punishment being a main function of government. We'll talk more about your views on punishment when we get down to what is it, pillar ten or eleven. Um, but for now, it's like I see that as the main role of government, and yet it's such a controversy when you believe that the government should punish what is evil. You know, blasphemy laws are all the uh, rage this week in terms yeah, of sorry. national debate. Um, but answer. it's like that's one of the Ten Commandments, you know, textbook good versus evil here. I don't, you know, and one of your pillars is on, you know, favoring Christianity, which we'll talk about later. But again, that's rewarding what is good. So I, I see like Romans 13 as a standard framework from which, you know, that's 
you know, your foundation, so to speak, and building a more biblical understanding of what should government do and what power should they have? I mean, foundation is, is, is it while it explicitly advocates Christianity, is it is also explicitly, though I don't know if I actually say this anywhere, non-biblical. It's not biblical because I'm not Protestant. And so, you know, I, I don't believe in, in personal interpretation of the Bible. I don't, I mean, I, it's not my thing. And so what I think about the Bible is, uh, I think is fundamentally irrelevant, both for myself and for, uh, and for, or not the Bible as a whole, but specific scriptural passages, because I think that I'm not, I, I am not uh, really competent to analyze Romans 13 and take from that on my, wholly on my own initiative, what that, what is being instructed to to the uh, to an average Christian? That doesn't mean it's not informed by the Bible, but I don't make any attempt to. to it's not a. Uh, this is kind of where I differ from some of the Christian nationalists who tend to to hold the opposite view. I'm not here to interpret the Bible for people. I'm here to interpret uh, what I think are Christian approaches to things as informed by people who are smarter than me who have thought about this. Fair enough. Um, and then we have, uh, so you talk about governing, not administrating. And I actually really like that point for this pillar because we have an administrative state as it's widely called. And instead of governing, like you look at Ron DeSantis, for instance, he's governing. He, you, you go into a territory, you take it over, you bend the territory to your will, you're, you're governing. Whereas the federal government is just, you know, presiding over, a lot of committees, a lot of boards that are making all these decisions and perpetuating the problems so they can perpetuate their own uh, paychecks and all that other stuff. So they're just, you know, they're, they're seeing over and that's kind of, you know, kind of a difference. Governing is more of a general mindset, whereas, uh, you know, because if you look at ancient Rome, since there's a lot of parallels between Rome and uh, foundationalism, mm -hmm. um, you know, your goal is to become a governor. So that you could, you know, in some ways pay back all the debts that you've accumulated. But um, also because, you know, that that was your that was the end goal is, you know, you become pro council to then become a governor afterwards, preferably of a rich province. Right. So I think uh, the uh, I mean, governing versus administering is tied closely to uh, a government of uh, of limited ends. Administration necessarily leads to mission creep where the government tries to administer everything and so if if you the focus is on governing and only governing with respect to specific ends anything that's matters needs to be dealt with and this is another pillar uh, subsidiarity it may be the case that some amount of administration is required say zoning laws you know, or something like that but that's something that's strictly done on a local level and therefore is responsive to the needs of, of local people and has nothing to do with the central government. And primarily what we're talking about here is the central government, of course. Right, right until we get to some of the later pillars. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to pillar three, which is about ruling class virtue. And I had a question about this because usually, you know, ruling classes, upper classes are a little bit more decadent because they can afford to be like there's only, you know, uh, so much degeneracy that a poor person can buy. Not that, a, you know, a lot of people are poor because they succumb to degeneracy and, you know, drugs and uh, vice and all that other stuff. But um, 
the rich people can get away with it more. And, you know, that's when you have your Epstein Island playgrounds and all this other stuff. It it is people focus on the kind of sexy stories of decaying stage civilizations where the rich are ill behaved. And and so, yeah, sure, like Epstein and the entire American elite is completely unvirtuous and rotten and decadent. But that's because they're at the tail end of their of their stage. If you take the American elite at the rising stage of the American American civilization, they're extremely virtuous and extremely non-decadent. Much- I mean, George, George Washington, to use an example of that, major gentry in terms of British class system. So he could have been richer than, say, a lord, but he wouldn't have had the aristocratic, aristocratic title. Mm-hmm. Um, all account, pretty virtuous guy uh, in terms of standing. You would have... You know Benjamin Franklin. I don't know how rich he yeah, was, he, but he was a little bit more DJ. He was, and there are there are exceptions, obviously, but there always are. But, but on average, a, he's a, like the pinpoint example of like a founding father not being the most virtuous in terms of you know moral behavior. Thomas Jefferson with the whole Sally Hemings being a myth and all. Yeah, no, I, I, I you're right. So, but on in any group of of men or men and women, you'll have some set of bad behavior, but. On average, in rising strong civilizations where the elite have virtue, they're much more virtuous than the average r- random poor person or m- maybe middle class person. That, that's hard to tell. And it, th- there's many examples of this, and, and I'm confining it to Western ones, but the classic example is, of course, the rising Roman Empire as opposed to the falling Roman Empire. Everyone talks about the falling Roman Empire. That said, of course, the behavior of, of the high virtue them when they had what they call the most maiorum the kind of <clears throat> backbone of virtue of the of the roman elite they behaved in ways that that i would regard as completely unacceptable because they're un- right yeah. um you look at say julius caesar i think he was someone who embodied a lot of the roman virtues um but that- even you started you're trending downward right you see there's there's a lot of rot creeping into the elite even at, at the at the by that point, you're into you're past the civil wars, and you, and it, 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 the period here is like 700 to 200 or to, to 150 BC, uh, where the the Roman elite you know, maintained an extremely high level of of virtue. Uh, it started to, but my point is that it's just not true that the elite tend to be less virtuous. In a successful society, the elite are extremely virtuous. We just need to have that in order to have a successful society. Why, why are the elite more virtuous in a successful society? Like, why is it that they're more virtuous and say the non-elite are less virtuous? Well, I, th- I think the that you can't have a successful society without a unified elite that, uh, that acts in lockstep or goals that are greater than individual self-gain. And that necessarily conduces to virtue uh, through the application of some set of external rules. Uh, it, that can be a religion. I mean, we think of it mostly in terms of religion. For the Romans, it wasn't religion in the same sense that we think of it. It was, as I say, the mos maiorum, which I forget what that that translates as, but it's the the code basically by which the Roman uh, Romans lived under the Roman Republic. Um, and uh, anyway, my, my Latin is no good. Anyway, uh, but the I think that you it's necessarily the case that a, a strong, successful society is going to have that because if you're never going to hear about them if they don't have that. Okay. And that's something I'll definitely uh, look into uh, as far as, you know, you got me uh, stood up on that one. <laughs> um, 
because again there is a because you know we're living in a world where the elite are so decadent that it's really hard to imagine otherwise and like it's kind of like the middle class is the least decadent but at the same time they're also you know there's also like the gynocracy ruling us as well but we're uh, in stage right you know the the clown show isn't gonna go right long but the clown car is gonna crash and so at that point all these people will just be historical footnotes so number four was uh sex role realism which i kind of thought was a no-brainer for sure uh you know, not a whole lot of questions here. It's just, you know, feminism's bad. Return to, you know, previous uh, gender roles. Uh, I'm wondering, how does this look in a spacefaring culture, though? That's a I great ask that. Right. So the the answer is that in, in a spacefaring culture, the uh, the women stay home and the men do all the dangerous stuff. The end. I mean, the men, women don't stay home. Like if you go, if you are like colonizing asteroids or something, the women stay at you know, the base and they raise the children. And if you notice all modern science fiction, even fairly good science fiction series with a book and then the TV show, The Expanse, of course they, they interchange men and women, which is insane, but they don't show any children at all. It's bizarre. So you know, a spacefaring society is gonna need lots of children, lots of children. And you know, the women will do, well, the women will basically be like uh, the Laura Ingalls Wilder kind of, kind, kind of women. They will do all the important things uh, in the home and in, in case of need, will do things like defense and the men will do 100%. And like, for example, on spaceships, there will be zero women. All right. I mean, uh, ship zero. is no place for a woman. Yeah, we've heard that a lot. I mean, uh, your audio is cutting out. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, that might be the first time that question's ever been asked about role of women in sp- or traditional gender roles of women in space. Um, so our fifth pillar is um, subordination of economics to politics. Um, can you talk more about your criticisms of rent seeking in uh, this uh, pillar in the manifesto? Because um, I had some confusion, but sure. I didn't disagree, but I just want a little bit more fleshed out. I mean, rent seeking is the is the economics term for seeking gain in any particular scenario. And most of the American economy nowadays revolves around rent seeking. And the you know, Congress enables people who are favored by Congress to gain rents. And of course, rents in this sense doesn't mean house rents. It's broader than that. The house rent is a type of rent in the sense. It means that people are allowed to obtain gains at the expense of uh, uh, at the expense of others and also more broadly at the expense of society so private equity companies for example are notorious for uh, looting and stripping companies in order to maximize their gains and they do maximize their gains so in a sense the economic pie, the economic pie is maximized when this is allowed but at the same time entire you know, families towns states are destroyed by this, these kind allowing these kind of activities. So what you need is a political solution that subordinates so-called economic maximization to broader social goals, which obviously include not be everyone being poor. But the fact is that the well, I mean, this it's a somewhat different argument, but most of what we think of as GDP is fake. So it's not even true that we're expanding the right because GDP, for instance, you know, doesn't really account for 
you know, used products or a lot of economic things don't count on the GDP. Or the classic example is like when two women hire each other to watch the other's child, GDP goes up, but if they each watch their own child, nothing happens in GDP, which is obviously stupid. <laughs> but they're still being productive. Right. I mean, I mean and so all of all of your so-called household labor that women traditionally performed isn't including GDP. And so people say, say celebrate when women are forced to go work in cubicles and put their children in daycares, the dumbest thing ever among a lot of very dumb things. And so the, uh, the, so the, the point is that I don't have any uh, occasion or often you'll see people on the right who are wedded to economic theories. Austrian economics will make everything wonderful and maximize everyone's gain. I just don't care about those things. I think basically that the society the people who govern the society should uh, set constraints on people's economic behavior in order to maximize societal flourishing, not to maximize so-called GDP. Obviously, while at the same time, part of that is eliminating rent-seeking, that is people uh, unjustly profiting. Uh, I mean, your textbook price. example of that would be the Blackguard, Vanguard group, or yeah, Black Vanguard, BlackRock and Vanguard groups. Um, who are these firms and the the people that are like buying up houses, taking loans out from like the Federal Reserve to buy, you know, very low interest rent loans to buy up all these properties to rent them out to people. It's not available to to the average Joe is used right. the average Joe. Right. And that's part of the problem. There's so much to kind of unpack here because, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of admire about America's enemies, so to speak, is that they prioritize natural national interest over economic interest. Like Iran's pursuing a, a nuclear bomb. Um, that is kind of in their national interest of defense. Um, you know, hate the player, but don't, you know, hate the game, not the player. I don't know, but it's sports teams. Like international politics is sports teams. You're rooting for one, you're rooting for your team, but the other team has, you know, it's, I don't believe in the, you know, it's, Cool. It's okay when one side does it, but not the other. Yeah. Um, Russia pri clearly prioritizes its own national interest over um, economics. Um, and America is like, wow, we don't really prioritize our national interest at all on the global stage. No, it's and, and it would behoove us to. And so I just kind of think like that. And one area where that's true is like we've outsourced all these jobs, these middle class jobs overseas. And, you know, People in Japan can have a middle class job making, you know, complicated electronics, TVs and stuff like that. Um, so Japan's allowed to have, you know, a middle class with manufacturing uh, capabilities. China's building a middle class based on our outsourcing of uh, our manufacturing. But America can't have that. Uh, we've outsourced it. We have a lot of, you know, the job markets not you know cool right now but and then you look at our economy i mean what is it at least 40 percent of our workforce 40 to 60 percent somewhere in that is public sector and that doesn't even count the public sector adjacent like you know i'm public sector adjacent because i my day job is government contract mm -hmm. so you know there's some so much of our economy now revolves around the government right it's fake. Uh, i mean yeah it, exactly yeah i mean mo mo I I'd have to look at it, but I mean, I would guess sixty to seventy percent of the GDP is fake, uh, and if it went away tomorrow, it, we wouldn't lose any actual social value. Now you'd still have catastrophic consequences because 
you we're levitating fake and people you use fake everything to buy fake other things and so it, the the process of re squeezing out the stupid it would be very painful it's not easy but it has to it's going to have to be done sooner or later and that's just the way it is so there's a lot to unpack um with the you know the fifth pillar but you know i think we understand the fifth pillar it's just like the implementation of it i think is just fascinating because you're basically saying that hey um you know the dollar isn't the end all be all which sure uh, we need to hear uh, you know the right wing needs to adopt it because we are not the party of the rich yeah the republicans are not the party of the rich we're outspent in generally every election barring set barring being an incumbent but not always but you know yeah, the I mean, in the classic, not a classic example, but I mean, you can tell in any society, a society that it, that has massive inequality with a small amount of of extremely rich people, is inherently going to be a society where the elites are not adequately virtuous, because they are the only way to accumulate those disparities in wealth is to in, engage in behaviors that are societally destructive. All right, so let's talk about the sixth pillar, which is uh, intermediary institutions. And I'm kind of more interested in how this is implemented because this is like the shortest uh, mm -hmm. portion of the manifesto. So I was more curious. Uh, can you summarize what this is for the people who haven't read your manifesto and then kind of just talk about... Intermediary institutions is just the, the phrase for uh, organizations that normal people belong to that... Uh, around which they organize most much of their daily life, most of which have been completely destroyed. Uh, Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone some years ago, which is the classic work on this. And basically, I mean, he focused on bowling leagues, but that's just one example. The uh, the people used to in America up until and started decaying in the 1940s or maybe early 1950s, spend most of the time around small local organizations, churches, unions, bowling leagues, you know, local clubs, rotary, what have you. And that's what organized their social life in their communities. Those things have essentially all been destroyed, disintermediated, and so now people interact. Their main interaction is with the state or with agents of the state like giant corporations. And that that's, that is that is inherently a destructive way to run a society. So you need to rebuild, and from the ground up is the only possibility, organically, intermediary institutions. The, the easiest one to rebuild is, the, is churches, but right. from there you have you 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 have to have other things flow from that as well. So uh, Andrew Eisker's book talks about this. I believe he also cites the uh, Bowling Alone book mm -hmm. um, because he talks about the atomized man, which is kind of what I see this as. A lot of male-only spaces have been eroded, um, in part because of feminism, yes, and glass ceiling chattering and stuff like that. You can't have all the civil rights laws need to be erased. People need to have total freedom of association, whether that's on the basis of race, religion, sex, what have you. Right. So I think this this pillar pairs very well with the fourth pillar on sex role realism. You're creating male space yes. um, and it helps create an undergirding social fabric, which leads to the high trust society, which is ultimately what this uh, what is the end of this uh, pillar? It's yes, high yes. trust society. Uh, so the seventh pillar is uh, subsidiary. So, right. So they go ahead. Okay, you go ahead. Yeah, I mean the idea. This is relates to the discussion earlier about 
government, and I touched a little bit on this, but this is, again, none of these concepts are original, obviously. The, the subsidiarity is, an, is a very ancient concept, but the idea that anything that needs to be done administratively needs to be done at the most decentralized level possible. That is, there's, there's no reason whatsoever to have the central government opining on the vast majority of topics. And to the extent that there needs to be some authoritative expression on some topic, uh, that needs to be done at the most local level possible, where the understanding of the facts and both the facts of the matter, the facts of the people, the the competing uh, claims may be a much easier to handle on a, far, a more local rather than a more centralized level. So I did have a question about this, but I, I want to kind of touch on, you know, it seems like the U.S. at its, you know, the U.S. Constitution seem to have gotten a lot of this part right. I mean, obviously the necessary and proper clause has been, and the uh, interstate commerce clause have definitely been interpreted at extreme levels to justify policies that go beyond the scope. But you look at, you know, powers of Congress, you know, establishing weights and measures, um, currency, uh, tariffs and import duties, you, you talk, and the ability to, you know, raise an income tax through apportionment. Uh -huh. uh, so they had a lot of fixed powers um, and a lot of, you know, central powers, but, you know, the regulation of marriage was explicitly reserved to the states until 2015 uh -huh. in that Supreme Court ruling uh, and among other things. So we've kind of gone way beyond that with, you know, creations of entire agencies. So one thing that I kind of wanted to uh, ask about in terms of the local politic is, you know, what happens when the actions of one community impacts another community? Is this when a higher level of government would kind of be the overseer of that? Yeah. Uh, that, that, so that, we're talking about the issue of externalities. Yeah, that, that necessarily has to be the case, though, obviously, in any kind of sizable polity, you're going to have multiple levels of, of government. I mean, your, your two basic choices are you, you can fight it out or you can have someone with a higher authority decide it for you. And this has been recognized for a long time, back to our discussion earlier about Western European monarchies. The monarch very rarely had anything to say about local disputes, but in many cases, and this developed in England, for example, relatively early on, you could, in fact, if you were not getting satisfaction, present something to the king in order to make a decision if, for example, you thought the local people were who were in charge of these disputes were screwing you. So typically, as with, with everything, the methods for dealing with uh, disputes develop organically, uh, typically from the ground up, uh, based upon the facts upon the ground of who has the power. And you, you want to avoid conflict, obviously, but there's always going to be a fair amount of push and pull until the the framework gets uh, gets situated. It just you know, conflict is inevitable, and some set of rules has to develop in order to alleviate that. But most typically, that's going to be whoever is the next level up in the chain. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of. Uh, are you familiar with the you know the Song of Ice and Fire book series? Sure. Okay, so yeah, or which is what Game of Thrones is based yeah. off of, and it reminds me of Daenerys, and when she's Queen of Marine. And all she does as queen is hold court. Mm -hmm. So she's literally overseeing the petitions of peasants yeah. and other noble classes. And that's one of the reasons why she's an extremely incompetent ruler. Yes. And the book portrays her as such. 
and you know maybe having a 15 year old girl as a ruler is a bad idea in general yes. um but she's an extremely incompetent ruler and one of the reason is you know she doesn't gov- you know she doesn't have an office so to speak she just holds court and oversees the disputes between peasants and that's not an effective way to govern yes so right. a, a well run society develops effective ways to govern but each of the, that's going and, and you also see that uh, in the book of exodus where you know jethro tells moses you need to uh create you need you need to create a hierarchy here to, to handle these disputes because you're moses you can't you sure. know you can't be having little people bringing their disputes to you over and you nothing and so and you don't want to you can't take things to extreme. So you don't want to start bl- a system like you see in the, some of the Balkan countries where blood feud right. <laughs> is the way to resolve disputes. And you, and you don't like a Scandinavian type system where you have people paying off fines for murders doesn't sound so great either. But again, these are all th- people, people develop different systems. Some of them are, are inferior. Some of them are, are superior. Ultimately, what you really want is something, a high trust society, as you referred to earlier, where people try not to get into disputes and resolve them on a family or group level informally with elders or something like that. So you don't need and have to involve the government at all, except in extreme cases. So uh, one of the, uh, so moving on to pillar eight and it's about hierarchy and order. So I want to ask about some sort of caste system because you you seem to have uh, a mentality that there's going to be some sort of, you know, class system. Um, I do want to ask, is there going to be like mobility between these classes or is that something that you foresee? Oh, sure. Or... I, mean, there has to be mobility. I mean, classes with no mobility, no ability to for people to to raise themselves. Uh, it's, it's, those societies like that tend to to calcify very rapidly and also to lose out on on talent. Yeah. At the same time, you don't want to strip it. You don't want every like upper class to strip all the talent away and make the local talent move as back to your the point you mentioned earlier with R on McIntyre and brain drain. One of the problems in America is that it used to be that every locality like Cleveland had an upper class full of smart people who stayed in Cleveland and did things for Cleveland. Now they all moved to DC so they can work in the EPA or something stupid like that. But yeah, you have to have, you have to have some degree of social mobility and typically that's done through, through talent. I mean, the church used to, to take out uh, people and, and raise them, or you know, people could uh, raise themselves through fighting prowess, obviously, or other forms of service to people who are higher up in the in the social hierarchy. And the same, and you also have to have the ability to fall in the social hierarchy because if you're like a, a goober loser with like some kind of set of sexual perversions, you know, maybe you need to go down a couple classes, right? I mean, so you don't continue to infect the the supposedly more virtuous upper classes. So yes, hierarchy is just inherent to all mankind. That's just the way it is. But you you have to have a somewhat porous set of hierarchies. Right. I think that might be something that maybe some people don't think is clear in the manifesto. Um, But but that's why we're asking. That's why we're asking the questions. Um, And then we're going to talk about the uh, punishment of crime which is also comes up in hierarchy and order. Cause that's, I guess the order part mm-hmm. and you're a much bigger fan of corporal punishment. And, uh, then you are say incarceration. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine there's some sort of historical precedent for that. I mean, cause you see a little bit of both, um, you know, incarceration uh, is a very modern punishment. And I mean, the, the, the in mass, yes. 
Sure. I, I mean, I mean, obviously, people have always been in prison for short periods, like, you know, in the drunk tank kind of thing. Like, you know, you got, got drunk and disorderly, so you're, you're going to spend two days in this jail cell, right? Or like a Western movie kind of thing, right, where people, the sheriff has a jail cell. But the, I mean, incarceration is just, well, A, it's arguably inherently inhumane. It's, it's, it's obviously societally uh, destructive. Basically, people should, with some exceptions, I mean, you can imagine, like political prisoners, I mean, like the United States government has, currently has a lot of political prisoners, which I don't support, but you can imagine a situation in which political prisoners m make some degree of sense. But short for what I would call common crimes or you know, things that are not administrative crimes or political crimes, uh, you want to beat people so they get, inflict pain or kill them. Because those are the things that historically have worked in order to make sure these things don't happen again. This is just entirely obvious. Okay, so you're saying it's obvious that corporal punishment is more effective. And, you know, in a modern society, should these things be live streamed or? No, uh, I'm opposed to the kind of the desensitization of people to, you know, that happens when you make a spectacle out of, out of, uh, pain infliction. I mean, this is a classically a big problem in things like public executions and, uh, and, and what have you. So, so in the movie, true grit, I think it's true grit. They have like a, you know, everyone's going to the hanging and they're sing singing hymns and stuff like that at the execution. So you're not really a fan of that type of system. Well, I have to see, see the, uh, the, or am I thinking of the movie, hang them high either way. Sixties Westerns had this. Right. Right. Like if you, if, if the Amish were, went went in for capital punishment, which they don't, obviously, they've been they're very pacifistic. But you, you can imagine that it would be salutary on the extremely rare occasions that someone got hanged for a crime in an Amish community if the Amish were self-governing, um, because the Amish are the Amish, and they would all learn something and then they would pray about it. But in a kind of more degraded society where everyone gets drunk and enjoys, the, the, you know, they regard it as a spectacle for fun because the people are more degraded and less religious, then it's just it's just corrupting the, the psyche of the, of the people. So yeah, you have to judge it to a certain extent. So for example, you can totally see in the executions for treason under the English kings. It probably made sense to bring the upper classes together so that everyone could see what was going on and it was probably something that was more of a serious occasion than an occasion for drunken merriment everything every situation is going to be different i just think certainly in our modern society it would just be terrible if we televised things like uh, like executions or corporal punishment okay i mean obviously like whether it be a local versus national you know varies you know if someone's getting flogged for junk driving or something like that is that like on video but you know it's not like you know, like a public access channel, so to speak. Um, yeah, I don't I, know. I, I, I'm just asking about implementation because, you know, isn't part of the, uh, you know, part of what, you know, the pun crime and punishment system, the justice system should be to deter crime. The punishment should be a deterrence to crime and seeing other people, you know, be executed for murder, so to speak, would be a deterrence against someone else committing that same crime. So yeah, I, I kind of wonder what that role plays if you know, a lot of this stuff is privatized, so to speak, maybe. so as not to. You'd have to see. Um, but uh, I, I think that uh, that like all things, you're not going to know the answer in, in, in advance. You may, you, you're going to have to make adjustments. And that, yeah, that's the way it is. And you can imagine scenarios where in one locality of town or county or state, 
they they have a public element and others they don't because they find that it's not not can do this is a form of subsidiarity okay so i, I like that aspect as well uh uh and you know me and you know back then they also used to like leave bodies hanging at places like i know like that was more of a roman thing right to just right. you know well, no they did that i mean also oh, a lot of historically people have left left uh left bodies out for uh, I, I mean i wonder if you know say with the united states illegal immigration crisis you know ron DeSantis or whatever you know, talks about stone cold dead um <laughs> and you just leave the bodies hanging as a you know hey this is a warning you know don't bring drugs into this country well, it seems uh, extreme, but you know it, it's probably effective, and you know, we, we definitely need a lot more capital punishment. Right? Um, do you, do you think that should also be a subsidiarity thing as well? Like, what gets capital punishment, or do you think there's some absolutes in what you get? Um, yeah, you don't want. The problem is you, you don't want the cause. The ca capital punishment can't be reversed or ameliorated later you need to make sure that the justice system is uh, rigorous in ensuring that it's uh, implemented properly and allowing things like the the local sheriff in a 20-person town to start executing people is probably going to lead to mistakes. So you need to have some system where right. where, where where you can be certain that you're getting a, a just application of, of capital punishment as opposed to like some local guy who's just sadistic, which could happen. Yeah. I mean, you, you, right. you need to you need to you need to be aware of the vices of of uh, everybody, not just the criminals being punished, but the other possible vices, and, and ameliorate those at the the level. Of right. I mean, the uh, movie Hang 'Em High with Clint Eastwood was based off of a real judge who was known for executing a bunch of people, and I think also getting a bunch of you know marshals killed. Yeah. Um, so because guys like, and that's why you have the higher level authorities to identify there's a problem. Right. I mean, the uh, like the Louis the Eleventh, um, I think it was one of the famous but relatively early French kings sent around. It was the first king to send around agents just to listen to the locals, so he could be he could be informed about these things and, and take action. So you need that that system is actually pretty valuable. Right. I, I mean, and one of the reasons why I wouldn't really consider myself a theonomist is because you look at you know practical application of law like you know the bible doesn't say you know arson is a capital punishment or even a super severe crime but obviously you know if you set fire to a house you could kill people mm -hmm. or you know if you set fire to say a certain place in california you know the amount of damage that you could do is catastrophic or you know to go back to the western example if you stole people's horses you know that was treated as a way severe offense because there's presumably the implication that you're leaving someone stranded to die. I, mean, I think it's also exactly, exactly right. I mean, every situation is going to be different. Stealing yeah. a horse in, in if, if everyone keeps horses for show jumping, that's different from stealing horses when you're, when they're, you're, they can strand someone. Right. So, you know, I, I was just wondering whether there is like a, only these crimes uh, get the capital punishment, or should it vary based on? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, absolute rule would be that no crime that is not in and of itself a crime uh, could be punished uh, by anything but a fine. That is, if the government makes a rule that says 
There's a Latin for that, like malum and say and malum prohibitum. No malum prohibitum crime should be punishable by anything but a fine or deprivation of property. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty good standard. Um, uh, and, you know, I think murder should also get capital punishment. Yeah, sure. 100%. Yeah. Um, I don't distinguish between first and second degree murder because I don't think God does because it talks about murder and manslaying. Um, uh, that I, I I would have to think about, but I, I, I but that's a good example of what I was talking about earlier. I would have I would I would not in the least base my opinion on that on what the Bible says. Well, I just don't think it was really a, a, a. I'm not sure when there in when in law there became a difference between first and second degree murder because either. But I mean, but I don't really think it's a real difference because yeah, you know, in terms of you kill someone, you intended to kill someone. I would not. I would not spend any time at all reading the Bible to determine whether whether I thought that. And I'm not trying to be be rude. I'm just saying, like in my, in my kind of frame, the the biblical uh, analysis of the crime of murder is is fundamentally not irrelevant, but close to irrelevant to the question of whether uh, capital punishment is appropriate. I mean, I would disagree just because I think the Bible prescribes it. No, I understand. I mean, that, but that, this is kind of a, a, one of the. I mean, I, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to like start a big argument, but my, no, point, not. my point is that that the this is a fundamental disagreement or worldview difference between the way how I approach some of these things and the, a lot of and the way the people I agree with on a, a lot of things approach these. Things. I mean, one of the reasons why I want to have this conversation is to understand the distinctions between yeah, foundationalism absolutely. and Christian nationalism. I think there's a lot of overlap. There is a, a lot um, of overlap, though. I, I can't uh, be an expert in Christian nationalism, but I certainly like the Christian nationalism guys. <laughs> and we certainly have a lot of affinity for you. There's some hype. Um, uh, and uh, let's talk about Pillar 9, um, the Christian religion. So this is basically about the government should prefer, uh, give preferential treatment to the Christian religion. Yes. And, and say, this was a no-brainer in Western civilization for right. hundreds over a thousand years and then all of a sudden you know we you know secular neutrality principled pluralism and you know this post-civil war consensus or not post-world war ii consensus um that you know you know america should not give any preferential treatment mm -hmm. uh yeah it's a very new idea that there shouldn't be some sort of uh preferential treatment i yeah. I, I believe in what I call pluralism light. I mean, Christianity should be the officially preferred religion, though I leave open what, what brand of Christianity and how, how to deal deal with that. And other religions which are not affirmatively pernicious should be allowed to operate, but they should have social debilities. That is, if you're going to be an upper class person and you're not Christian, well, that's probably going to cause you extreme difficulties in, in rising and maintaining your position uh, in the upper classes or in government and so on. You should It should be expected that the default position of anyone who's important in society uh, is Christian. And um, if you choose to go a different way, that, that's fine, but it's not like it's cost-free. Right. I mean, I don't think the government can compel conscience, but again, that's one of those accusations against Christian nationalism that's unfounded. Like no one's really advocating for an established church. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think it would be inherently wrong, but no one's really no. doing that in the American context, uh, so to speak. And so that's, you know, completely unfounded allegation. And then the idea that, you know, we can't force people to go to church. I mean, 
uh, and we can't, you know, make someone save by government compulsion. I don't think that's really how that works. Um, and, you know, the idea is that, you know, the keys of the kingdom stay separate from the sword of the government. You know, the government's supposed to promote what is good and punish what is evil. It's not, you know, it stays in its own lane. Yeah, no, I agree. I and think- then the other accusation, and maybe you can speak more to this, is that, you know, we're neo-integralist. And, you know, Christian nationalists are accused of being integralist. And that's, you know, not a Protestant yeah. view of government. Sense that, that's like a nonsensical statement in the Protestant context. And uh, I mean, uh, low IQ to go back to uh, what you were right. talking and, and I, I, I think you should have what they call the Byzantines used to call symphony, which is cooperation between uh, between church and state. But I think fundamentally, the you, you don't want the church, you don't want the state spending, certainly the state should enforce small rules and prohibitions that are strictly moral in nature with criminal sanctions. I have no objection to that. But a society with a government, the only reason that people obey the moral rules is because of government punishments is obviously not going to succeed. What you want to have is extreme social stigma for is the controlling device for most things. That is, adultery is is illegal. Divorce is not allowed. But the, the real enforcement mechanism in successful societies for those things is stigma. That is, you're expelled from polite society if you engage in bad behavior of those sorts. I mean, I think that's one of the most overlooked things or under-focused things is that, you know, I I think it works top-down and bottom-up in terms of, you know, how things work. You know, the government can set a tone, but you know, and that causes a social change that 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 people then comply with, so to speak, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see it work in a very bad direction. Like how many <laughs> people went, you know, how much did our society go gay after 2015? Yeah, that's really right. gay. Whatever. Um, so it worked in the opposite direction. And I think it can work in a positive direction if it were trained to work in a positive direction. Right. And so social stigma all, all day, every day. So, uh that kind of covers the ninth pillar, which again, you know, Michael O'Fallon will call us neo-integralist for this and all this other stuff, but it's really, you know, you look at say the Zambian constitution, which I think it's Zambia, um, where they say in their preamble that this is a a Christian nation and stuff like that, like stuff like that is good. And and it helps create the undergirding social fabric that enables a trust, high trust society. Yeah. uh, Which is, you know, what Stephen Wolf is very much uh, advocating towards. Uh, so let's talk about the 10th pillar as we round uh, the final stretch, and that's high culture. So you talked about, uh, I think we already answered our question on the high mobility. Um, how much of this is inspired by the Roman pat- patronage system? Because this is kind of like... Well, it's know, not just the Roman patronage system, but it does relate to the economics and the upper classes. I mean, every successful society, the, the rich people... Uh, dictate the course of art and culture and fund the course of art and culture. And that's true. In our current society, we just fund. <laughs> I mean, like the Italian Renaissance art, uh, particularly was patroned by high society. And so on. So we, we just need to need to reverse the current flow of things. We need, I mean, the, the current ruling class that has all the money should lose all that money. And ultimately, it should, to the extent there's real value there as opposed to fake money, it's going to go to a new, largely new set uh, ruling class, and they should adopt a new set of uh, artistic mores and motifs and fund 
a different set of, of artists. And you know, we can just forget that the unfortunate so-called art of the past 60 or 70 years, the vast majority of it ever happened. Yeah, I mean, I think this one's kind of simple, but yeah, it does it does remind me of the Roman system. Which, sure, absolutely. You know, you know, in more American context, the you know so-called mafia is loosely inspired by that, uh, as it took various more criminal elements. But yeah, but I mean, that's you know, perversion of the of system. That right. When it works correctly, it works well. Right. So. Uh, Pillar 11, techno optimism. And again, a lot of stuff about spacefaring. And, you know, you're not about idealizing uh, agrarianism, which a lot of people tend to do on the right is, you know, homestead, uh, homeschool, homestead, and uh, maybe something else that starts with home. Um, I'm definitely into those things. But as you can see, yeah. I'm a very highly online individual. Uh, I'm an embracer of technology. Uh, in and more technological entertainment rather than like traditional entertainment in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm not uh, techno cynical or technophobic might be the other way, way to put it. So you kind of challenge a lot of preconceived notions of, you know, the more people who are more traditionalism focus more on idealizing agrarianism. You challenge that head on uh, with techno optimism by also going into spacefaring. Yeah, I think it relates to the space frame. It's not at all limited to the space frame. You can do this entirely without space. And I, I, I'm all for homesteading and, and those things. I, I regard those things highly. I do a lot and of do it in space myself. And you can do it in space. I think my point is that technology is not inherently bad. That is, but the a lot of the uh, the technology that we have and the, the uses to which we put technology are extremely bad. This is just a question of a virtuous society controls technology and rather than allowing technology to control it. I understand there are people who disagree with this. They think that technology or technique in the Jacques Ellul sense is, is inherently uh, destructive of, of you know, mankind's morality and, and so on. Uh, I think we can, uh, we can control technology as long as enough uh, stigma is placed upon misuses of technology. But um, uh, Yeah, along those lines, like you look at the whole artificial intelligence discussions like i like artificial intelligence i i'm someone who can use artificial intelligence to you know you know advance this ministry uh do other things like i i think we should harness this power and use it for good because it can be if you you know know the limitations of it understand the limitations understand that chat gpt is biased and kind of you know gear your questions and prompts and stuff like that so if you know how to use it you can effectively use it and it's a good example. I mean, I'm skeptical about ChatGPT, and I don't think we'll ever have strong AI. But you're right. I mean, you can you can use things. Like Andrew Torba agrees with that. Yeah. Well, he also says that AI will also will always be a function of like its inputs and outputs. That we're yeah. not going to have a sentient computer. And, and, and the hype around it is already dying down. I mean, it's like you know, I I said five or six years ago the driverless cars were never going to happen. And they're never going to happen. Uh, and they're no. Yeah, I would have agreed. And same with flying cars. Yeah, there's never in a, in a post 9/11 world like that's not going to happen. Well, I mean, not never going to happen is a bit of an overstatement. Like I'm dry a hundred years from now, there might be driverless cars, maybe. Uh, but we're definitely never going to have AI in the sense of like true artificial intelligence. That's yeah, just, we're not going to have Skynet. Um, but a waste of our time. Elon Musk is going to try though. Yeah. Well, you know. Uh, yeah, and he's he wants to create his truth AI, even though he was the 
face of chat GPT and yeah, look how that turned out. I, I, Musk is a whole other discussion. Um, yeah, I mean, he is. I'm uh, generally a fan, but I mean, I'm not like dispensational or anything, but as in terms of anti-Christ like figures or people who want to elevate themselves to God, like he is that guy. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, again, not my eschatology, but. <laughs> uh, uh, and then I also like what you said about, you know, choosing atomization. Like this is a choice that we make. Yes. And we can choose to become drones to technology or we can, you know, basically choose to harness and take control of it. So yep. I think that's the uh, dichotomy that you set up and you acknowledge a lot of critiques of this in your, uh, in the manifesto. So mm -hmm. this one's like the most that you allow pushback on, I think. Yes. And uh, it's because I'm, I'm, it's really probably the one that's an excellent point that I'm still working out in my own mind the most. And then lastly, we have the uh, 12th pillar, which is nationalism, not globalism, which kind of seems like a duh. Yeah, we kind of uh, talked about that already. I mean, it is a kind of a duh. I mean, you know, I mean, you, you, without a, a nation, you, in a sense of nationhood and nationalism, you don't have a nation and therefore you don't have a society and you can all go home. <laughs> now, do you ever see like globalism becoming a thing? No. Uh, never? No, I mean, uh, there used to be a vogue among among rightists in like mid 20th century for even people like Ernst Jünger for like the future global state. Never going to happen. Total waste of time. Yeah. Uh, or all the science fiction that wants a unified planet Earth in order to. Uh, yeah, totally. uh, You're much more likely to, if, you, if you ever had a, a well, the, the science fiction books where like the different types of people for, form their own planets is more likely. Like right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's Star yeah. Trek where it's like the planet has unified, therefore we can make first contact or something. That's kind of like the mentality that they have. Uh, Waste of time. <laughs> uh, so uh, you also make the argument that foundationalism is for the West. And why is that? Is it because it's very much inspired by ancient Rome and sort of the practices of ancient Rome or... I think it's inspired by Rome. It's more just by like history in general and, and the reality of things. Part of that is that I don't understand Asian cultures, which would be the only advanced societies ever, uh, or Asian broadly viewed. Um, because that would include like maybe even the Middle East during its heyday, yeah, or... so, that's what I mean, broadly viewed. So, the but the I mean, the only societies that ever really advanced, uh, the world are Western societies, again, broadly viewed to include include the Romans. I mean, functionally, if the Chinese had never existed, it would be of no, no difference whatsoever. And if the Europeans had never existed, we would still be living in the world of the 1400s um, at best. So uh, I think that the foundationalism is a society, is a program well, for the West. The Chinese discovered gunpowder, right? So... Well, right, but then they didn't do. I mean, they did more with it. Firearms. It wasn't just fireworks. They had very crude weapons and cannon, which they didn't advance at all for hundreds of years. And when the Europeans got their hands on gunpowder, within twenty years, they were using you know twenty foot long forged steel cannon or iron forged iron cannon to destroy you know masonry walls. So, uh, while well, the Chinese were still loading gunpowder and some metal balls at the, on a, a basket at the end of a stick and lighting it with a match. Yeah, like uh, those things in the Mulan animated movie? or Well, that, I have not seen Mulan. Little... There, there, there's a whole book I, I reviewed. 
Okay. Gunpowder Age by an Italian guy named Antonio Andrade uh, that goes through a lot of this stuff, though his point is not as negative about the Chinese as mine, but his facts uh, you know, prove the point. Um, so it's a, it's a program for the West because the West is the only successful society, truly successful set of societies that the world has ever seen um, in terms of, of advancement. And also because the, the you know, that's mostly what I know. And so I can't, I, I can't really speak to the deep cultural underpinnings of Chinese civilization because I just don't know anything about it. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, was it Time Magazine famously said that the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press was like the most important in, invention or yes. uh, of, of the millennia? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think the Chinese had their own different version of a printing press, but it's like, is that as far as we advance without Western civilization as a printing press? I mean, historically, that's that's been the pattern. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know how much Japan really advanced on its own during its 200 years of isolation. Nothing. They didn't do anything. Yeah. And then when they then, then they adopted Western stuff when they came out of that, because yeah. you know, it was the best. And you know, they did a pretty good job with that, but it's still adopting other people's stuff. And then at their height, they were kind of an imitation of the British Empire. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't end very well for them. So, yeah, it's interesting that you make that point because, you know, I, I've said some, yeah, I, I have some spicy thoughts like, you know, matriarchy never built anything. But then you're like, you know, if it weren't for Western civilization, if it weren't for Europeans, we'd be living in the 14th century, 1400s yeah, so, at most. Well, on, the, on the matriarchy or, thing, I like to say that uh, a society of exclusively built of men is a is a society of killers, though pretty accomplished uh, killers, and a society of women is very comfortable in its caves. So, um, you know, that's uh, that's the distinction. And same thing for West. You need the West to the West is it, it, it's it's not true. You were a commenter that it is true that the, that uh, the Chinese and Koreans uh, in in both yeah movable blocks. I, I I acknowledge that. I was just saying like but you know, they considered the Gutenberg one to be the biggest invention or whatever, but metal type, which is a, a radically different step forward. So like, same thing with gunpowder. It's the Europeans who took the things that other people couldn't take to their perfect perfection level and perfected them. Right. And, you know, you look at, was it the 1400s or what is it, uh, 100 years war, they were using cannons and, yeah. and stuff like that. And, you know, rather effectively at times. Sure. Very, very rapidly. So. so. So anyway, there you go. That's all 12 pillars. So there's knights and cannons at the same time in European history. Yeah. It's one of those under realize recognize facts because you think of cannons you think of you know jack sparrow era of yeah. circumnavigation and stuff like that but no they had cannons and knights yeah so um anyway that rounds out our 12 uh and we've kind of discussed some differences um between christian nationalism and uh foundationalism uh maybe we can end a little bit more on that just a question. Uh, this is super late for me, so I need to get to bed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we covered this. Um, some different assumptions going in and, uh, you know, foundations or more Protestant view of uh, bringing scripture to it. I mean, I'm not I don't have a complete sense in my own mind of the differences. I mean, I have read uh, large parts of, of Stephen Wolf's book and and, and so on. And uh, but much of the, the theology is kind of outside my ken. Uh, but uh, but I, we've touched on a couple of the points. Of right. Difference, so, 
Uh, anyway, uh, thank you for your time, and I'll let you get on out of here. Um, anyway, if you like this kind of content, subscribe to the channel if you are new, and you can support us at our Patreon-like system at evangelicaldarkweb.org/join. That's our Patreon-like system. Um, works like Patreon, but we built our own because Patreon censors, and we try to build as much of our own infrastructure as possible. So you can do that. Otherwise, don't forget to like the video on your way out and subscribe to the channel, to the podcast, if you are new. Uh, have a blessed night, and we will catch you on the next one.